Okay, let's see if this works. I was inspired because last night I went and saw a guy called Tim Minchin, who's a comedian and a really good piano player. Everyone's ill, we're all covered with snot The cough is relentless, I sleep in a shot We've had millions of swabs, but COVID it's not It's just the same old crap that we've always got Soft road and cough, snot filling our head It'll make you grumpy, but not make you dead It's an erty, it's just nerdy is this the start of the predicted surge that we're seeing? Everybody's got it and seeing is believing The scientists are failing the bugs through The nations say it's not worse than 2019 in the population But I know what I see And all my friends agree Twitter, Facebook too Even Instagram, although I never look at you It's an erty just an erty, but will it bring GP to its knees this winter when the rates are highest? Or could it be that we have got it wrong and it's not that bad and we've all just got a bit of confirmation bias yeah i know what you're thinking it's quite a long song to get just to a really weak joke about confirmation bias i'm not going to give up the day job anytime soon it's the 26th of november and this is the hot topics podcast Welcome everybody. Thanks for joining us once again on the Hot Topics podcast from MB Medical. My name is Neil Tucker and it feels like ages since we've last done a podcast. But it's been really busy with MB. We've just been putting together our latest urgent care course and we ran the first one of the new season last weekend. So if you want to get updated in management of urgent care and general practice then do check out the course. If you're one of our MB Plus subscribers, you'll know that it's all included. You can come and join us one of the live shows that's coming up. Check out the website or you can watch it on demand through the website as well. And we've managed to have a bit of fun as well. Who wouldn't want to play Name That Insect or learn what the world record for how far your eyeballs can protrude is? I know the answer. I've seen the pictures. It's all pretty freaky. Now, shall we have a little bit of an update on what's been happening in the world of general practice and medicine over the last few weeks? COVID is still here. Politicians are still wankers. GPs in England are still talking about striking and carrying on seeing everyone as usual. As usual. Right now, the fate of England GPs is being discussed. We've got the LMC conference that's going on at the moment. We've got a new um, chair of the GPC. Uh, which is Dr. Farah Jamil. And I think many of us have high hopes for her. She seems really solid. She knows what she's talking about. She's prepared to stand her ground on important issues. And she's been really visible over the last few years as well, both in to the general practice, but also the general public media as well. 
She's given a speech already at the conference setting out her vision over the next few years. And she's also given the results of this recent BMA ballot on possible industrial action. And almost 60% of practices support withdrawing from the PCN DES. Almost 40% would actually just withdraw immediately. This is a really complex area and I'm sure all of you will have your own opinions on what you think is the right thing for general practice to do in England. And while we may not necessarily agree on how we need to go about it or what we need to see happen, I think all of us agree that change is necessary. I'd be really interested to know your opinions and I'd also be really interested to know if you're a GP in Scotland, in Wales, in Northern Ireland, looking in at what's going on with general practice in England at the moment, what's your take on it? Do get in touch. So you can email hottopics at mbmedical.com or find us on Twitter at GP Hot Topics or at Dr Neil Tucker. I would love to hear from you. Let me know what you think. Meanwhile, there's a new variant of COVID, which scientists have discovered emerging from a number of African countries. It's been described as heavily mutated, the worst version they've seen so far. And the number of mutations may mean that current vaccinations are ineffective against this strain. Stock markets are crashing. Everyone's worried. One wonders if the politicians of Western nations had been a bit more generous in sharing their vaccination loads and facilitating those in some of the poorer countries getting access to them. Whether this could have been preventable, I dare say they'll set up a committee, zoom in from the British Virgin Islands and tell us the outcome in five years' time. One thing's for sure, Covid wasn't done last Christmas, it's definitely not going to be done this Christmas either. And I know that loads of you are absolutely slogging your guts out delivering third doses of COVID vaccines to your patients right now. I wonder if we could be seeing a fourth one coming in in the not too distant future. Anyway, time for us to focus on some new research and recommendations. And I think with all this doom and gloom going around, it's high time that we had a little peek at NICE's new draft guidance on depression. It's been over a decade in the making. Was it worth the wait? Then we're going to have a look at a BJGP paper, which is an international consensus statement on the management of long COVID. Seems timely. And then we will round up with a new paper in The Lancet from this week on bariatric surgery. So let's start off with this draft guidance on depression from NICE. So this has been coming for over... 12 years now. The last guidance was published in 2009. This is not a complete rewrite, but it is a major update of that guidance. Probably for us, the biggest change is that they now distinguish between what they term severe depression or less severe depression. So people with what they term sub-threshold symptoms or mild depression would fall into that latter category. They've performed an evidence review and identified a wide range of options that could be available for people with all severities of depression. But they recommend for people with less severe depression, antidepressants are not routinely considered first line. Group CBT, group behavioural activation therapy, individual CBT, individual behavioural activation therapy... 
uh, self-help with support, group exercise as well, group mindfulness or meditation, interpersonal psychotherapy, counselling. All of these are recommended as potential options, all with their pros and cons listed. So they are trying to shift the conversation away from antidepressants. The caveat is that they also say if a patient's preference is medication, then they can have it. But all of this is encompassed within a thorough holistic assessment. Options are good, of course. We like options. The problem with options is being able to provide those options and do so in a timely fashion. It's no surprise that so many people end up on medications when they may have to wait months to get access to some kind of therapy so that they can then start feeling better. They know and we know that they could start an antidepressant on the same day if they wanted to. So why wouldn't you? Well, the guideline also includes information now on withdrawal symptoms and recommendations about tapering doses if we are discontinuing. So there's a definite acknowledgement now that while antidepressants can be beneficial for a lot of people, they can also cause problems too, and especially when people are trying to stop them. For me, the biggest challenge over the years has actually been trying to figure out who fits into which category. When is it mild? When is it moderate um, depression? When it's severe, people are at the far end of the spectrum. That's really easy. But actually even working out if someone is truly depressed or not, I think is increasingly challenging. I was reading a book over the summer called Losing Our Minds, What Mental Health Really Is and What It Isn't. It's by a researcher at UCL called Dr. Lucy Fawkes. It's a really fascinating read. It goes in depth into the best data and evidence we've got around mental ill health. And of the many interesting observations that she makes, two come to mind that may be relevant now. So firstly, the use of language has changed over the years and particularly in the youth of today. So now when someone feels a bit sad, they feel depressed. Something bad happens. Oh, I feel really depressed today. This causes a range of problems. So, for example, there is this psychological phenomenon where we can basically talk or believe ourselves into genuine mental illness. So there's lots of depression going around. I feel a bit depressed. We're using that language a bit more. I then get worried that I'm going to be depressed and that starts making me depressed. And then eventually I am depressed. Many people may be getting stuck in this vicious cycle, which ultimately does end up in them becoming mentally unwell. Also, this change in the use of language makes it more complex for us as clinicians to differentiate between severities of illness. It would be great to think that there were tools out there that would help us objectively measure the severity of depression. So many of us in the past may have used a PHQ-9 questionnaire or a Beck's Depression Inventory Score. But as Dr. Fawkes points out, these are screening questionnaires. They don't make the diagnosis. A diagnosis of depression is something that's made between the patient and an appropriately trained clinician after a thorough clinical assessment. So this will continue to be a challenge for us in general practice. The NICE guidance doesn't really help with that, but then it was never really going to. And I think, broadly speaking, the recommendations that they've made are going to be helpful for improving patient care and improving patient and clinician choice. Fingers crossed it might actually spur a bit of extra cash going into psychological services and social prescribing options so that these recommendations can be realised. All right, next up, another tricky area, long COVID. 
So national guidance on this is really broad brushstrokes. Feels a little bit like we're left to our own guessing game in practice. But in this month's BJGP, there's lots of stuff on long COVID, including publication of international consensus statements on the management of long COVID. Before you get too excited, the problem with these recommendations is that they are either things that are really obvious and you would already do, or they are for investigations that in the UK we find very, very difficult to get access to. There are positives. So it talks about individualised care, investigations, management and rehabilitation. It acknowledges that long COVID is not in the mind. Clinics should not be led by mental health specialists. Indeed, they should be run by a doctor with cross-specialty knowledge and experience of managing this condition. Now, they don't explicitly say that that should be a GP. And indeed, I get the impression from reading the guidance that this is put together by specialists who probably have had very little experience or even maybe have forgotten that general practice exists. But it seems to me that we're in quite a good position to be coordinating the care of these patients, perhaps not from our practices, but from long COVID clinics. For patients with ongoing respiratory symptoms, they recommend chest X-ray, but also remind us that normal appearance does not exclude respiratory pathology. Also, they remind us that the same is true for spirometry. So it doesn't necessarily detect diffusion defects from scarring pulmonary embolisms or microthrombi and to identify those we need to make referral for full lung function testing. There's a lot of talk about doing lots of investigations in the cardiac section. So ECG, troponin, halter monitoring, echocardiography and in those with with ongoing chest pain consider referral for cardiac MRI. By this point we're into fantasy land so we've been talking about long COVID on the Hot Topics course this um, this season. And as we've been virtually talking to many of you from around the country, it seems that your long COVID clinics are desperately struggling and often have zero access to some of these more involved and specialist tests. Anything else we can learn from these recommendations apart from the fact that they seem unrealistic in the NHS? Well, one thing that did um, stand out was the idea about mast cell disorder. So patients who are getting urticaria, conjunctivitis, wheeze, inappropriate tachycardia, palpitations, shortness of breath, heartburn, abdominal cramps or bloating, diarrhea, sleep disturbance, neurocognitive fatigue, consider mast cell disorder. And whilst I would normally be pushing this one definitely towards the specialists, They do suggest that the usual management in this circumstance would be a one-month trial of initial medical treatment and dietary advice using higher-than-standard doses of antihistamines, and if there's a partial effect, adding in a second-level treatment like Montelukast. While we're doing this, we can make an allergy or immunology referral. So presumably, locally to me then, that's actually not a one-month trial, that's a 20-month trial, and us all keeping our fingers crossed. One thing to be aware with mast cell disorder is that adverse drug reactions are more common. So in particular to beta-lactam antibiotics, NSAIDs, um, opiates as well. So if people have got this, be careful with what you prescribe. Other important mentions, 
They make the connection between COVID and POTS, so postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. We're covering that on the Hot Topics course this season, so do join us for that if you want a bit more information. And then also, uh, if people do have cardiac symptoms, they advise them to limit their heart rate to 60% of its maximum until everything can be thoroughly investigated and they have supervised exercise testing. So that's a bit of an ask, isn't it? Um, What does that mean for our patients? Well, they probably shouldn't be going out and doing really strenuous runs. For some, it means that they probably shouldn't be watching the Strictly Results show. And generally, people need to chill out and take it easy. Heaven forbid any medic should ever get long COVID with cardiac symptoms. We'd be in a whole world of trouble. There is more in the recommendations. I dare say we'll talk about it on the next season's Hot Topics course. Um, But in the meantime, if you want to have a look, I'll put the link in the description for the podcast. Now, the last piece of research was published in The Lancet this morning, and it caught my eye because last week, Public Health England published data showing that deaths from liver disease rose by 10% from um, 9,200 to over 10,000 in England between 2019 and 2020. For a long time, it's been suggested that liver disease is the unrecognised pandemic And it's not alcohol or intravenous drug use leading to viral hepatitis that's driving the problem. It's obesity causing inflammation in the liver, which can ultimately lead to cirrhosis in some. Now, we don't know how many people with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease actually go on to develop end-stage liver failure. We suspect it's only a small proportion. But of course, obesity is so common in the population now that actually that leads to a lot of liver disease. And this 10% increase that we've seen in itself, a rather stark rise, may just be the start of something much, much larger. So I think it's probably fair to say that most of us in general practice are still not that great about considering the option of bariatric surgery for our very obese patients. This is despite the fact that we've got really strong evidence to show the benefits of bariatric surgery. We know that gastric bypass tends to lead to the most profound weight loss and also has some of the most durable effects on weight of all of the different bariatric surgeries. But it's also a major operation and of course it is irreversible. This was why gastric bands were so popular, although gastric bands seem to lead to lots of complications and requirements for redoing surgery, plus their effects seem to wear off in many patients over a few years. The band of course is constricting the stomach from the outside and reducing the volume inside. But an alternative way to reduce that volume would be to have a balloon inside the stomach. So in this Lancet paper, seven centres across the US recruited adults aged 22 to 65 with obesity and randomised them to either have an adjustable intragastric balloon plus lifestyle intervention or lifestyle intervention alone over the course of 32 weeks. And the balloon volume could be increased or decreased to facilitate either extra weight loss or improved tolerability. And the results were very impressive with the balloon group having on average a 15% reduction in their body weight compared with just 3% in the lifestyle group alone. Intolerance led to 17% of the balloon group having the device removed before the end of the studies and 4% of the group 
had a serious adverse effect from the balloon treatment, although there were no deaths, thankfully. The obvious limitation in the study, of course, is the relatively short follow-up at the moment, although I dare say over time we're going to get longer-term data. Only then will we know if the effect is durable. So is it a good option? Well, it's effective in its primary goal. It's relatively safe. It's got a degree of adjustment if someone is finding it difficult to tolerate. It's a simpler procedure initially than a bypass and it's potentially reversible. Time will tell, of course, about the longer term side effects and durability of benefit. What it definitely does do is add to the range of options that obese patients have for bariatric surgery. We just need to remember that they're out there, they're available and they can be very, very helpful. That reminds me, our resident expert on obesity, Stephanie DiGiorgio, is currently writing MB Medical, a new course on obesity. So hopefully that'll be available in the first half of next year. Do keep an eye out for that. And don't forget to have a look at the website and look at all the other courses we've got coming up over the next few months, including a brand new abnormal blood results course. As ever, if you are subscribed to MB+, all of these are included. So don't forget, you can get in touch. Hot Topics at mbmedical.com, at GP Hot Topics. Find us on Facebook. Look after yourselves out there. Remember to take some time for yourself. And I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.